Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Development podcast for educators who are teaching Jewish things in Jewish schools. We're your hosts, Jen Stern-Granowitz and Aaron Wieser, Jewish educators from New York City. Aaron, we received a great question from one of our listeners. A question? We got a question? I mean, we have a lot of listeners, so yes, we get questions. Did we get four questions? Sorry, that was a Passover joke. Is it too soon for Passover jokes? It's probably not soon enough. It's not soon enough, but it's not a Passover question, and we'll just talk about one of them. So I'll read this question. Um, It comes from a teacher who works at a Jewish day school in Manhattan who writes, I have a topic of interest that has peripherally come up in social studies. When teaching about Pangea and relevant history, Students will often ask about or don't understand how this theory relates to the creation story they learned in Genesis. So that's interesting. She's wondering how to teach a scientific explanation for how the world came to be at the same time as honoring a religious explanation for how the world came to be that they may have heard in the same school or they've learned in other schools. And She's thinking that for younger learners, that must feel really complicated to integrate those two explanations. Does that sound like what she's saying? So, yes, that's also my understanding of her question. I think many of us have met the learner who says, this isn't even true. Why are we learning about this? There isn't a God. The splitting of the Red Sea didn't happen. Right. So the kind of underlying premise of that kind of response is if it's not scientifically, historically proven, then it's inferior. For me, I hold the Torah in high regard as a book that I think is divinely inspired. And at the same time, I think what happened in the Torah is not historical fact. And the story of creation in Genesis is a sacred text to me, and I believe in evolution. And that nuance and balance works for me personally. I think a big reason is the chain of tradition that comes before me and keeps me connected. So I think finding that balance with the Torah isn't 100% true, and so a book that's you know, meaningful can be hard. I think the sort of quote unquote, believe in this because it's the word of God can seem on face value like an easier explanation, but in a liberal and non-Orthodox environment, it's not authentic. Yeah. I think the believe in this because it's the word of God speaks to what you're saying about the power of this being real. And if it is seen as being less real, then it's seen as having less power and authority. And I think that's kind of what we're really grappling with today. And so I'm excited to bring on our guest, Rabbi Jeff Middleman, who is the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, an organization that bridges the religious and scientific worlds, offering people a worldview that is scientifically grounded and spiritually uplifting. And a friend of mine of many years, Rabbi Jeff Middleman, We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Aaron and Jen. It's nice to be able to talk with you both here. And a terrific, terrific question that is 
a question that comes up quite frequently. This is not an unusual question to be able to get. And I think that's the first piece is to be able to ask what's driving that question, because I think they're asking that for a deeper reason than just sort of pure intellectual curiosity. So I think the first thing that I would do is to be able to say, well, why is that a question for you? Sometimes that might be because the kid is a little bit rebellious and, uh, and wants to be a little bit snarky, but it also might be because the kid is learning one thing in social studies as this teacher is and Judaics in, in the other part, and they're starting to be in conflict and they're trying to integrate in their identity. So some of it is I would have a conversation with that kid before even answering it, um, of being able to say, why is this an important question for you? At different developmental ages, kids start off very concrete. And as they get older, they become more and more abstract. So for a, for a four or five-year-old, we tend to talk a lot about Noah's Ark because that's a very concrete kind of thing in this kind of way, because that's what's developmentally appropriate. Generally, often in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, as I was a pulpit rabbi for seven years, so I worked with a lot of B'nai Mitzvah kids, some of it is they're starting to be a little bit more independent and independent thinking. Um, some of it is that they're learning more and more of the science. So they're starting to find these potential points of contradiction here. But I think the biggest answer to be able to, to really talk about this is that there's different ways in which we can answer this question because it's asking two different kinds of questions. We talk about truth with a capital T and we use that to encapsulate everything. And something's either true or false. And that's this binary dichotomy. And either it's something true or it's false. And if it's, if it's not one, it's the other. And that's really problematic because if you've ever had a relationship with somebody, you know that there's never any kind of truth with a capital T about what happened and that other person's lying. Like, is this true? And we mean that in so many different ways that we sometimes conflate them. So sometimes when we think of is something true, we're asking, is it factual? And that's something of what, what science is meaning to be able to do. Science's job is not to help us find truth. Science's job is to help us become progressively less wrong. So if you look back on all the different things that we sort of knew scientifically, if we knew 1,300 years ago or the time that the Torah was written, we would look through and the, and the facts that we would see, and I'm putting this in, in quotes here, the facts that we would see is that we are the center of the universe. The sun goes around us. And why did we have that? Because that's what you looked at. That's what we saw. That's what we knew. There wasn't a, a level of scientific instrumentation and a scientific process. And science, as it progresses, it helps us to be able to say, this is what I thought was accurate. And now I'm finding that maybe I was wrong in this kind of way. So I think it's really important to be able to understand that science is not a body of facts. It's a process by which we get a better understanding of the way the universe works. The Torah is designed to give us what I would call sort of emotional and social truths. They're ones that help us understand who am I? How do I act as part of this society here? How do I fit in into this larger question? So the creation story is this question of who am I and how do I fit in the larger universe? But it's really trying to be able to understand it in a much more of a poetic sense in the same way that when we read poetry or other kinds of, of literature, we don't read the cat in the hat to be able to find out, okay, what kind of cat was that exactly? And let me find this out. That's not why we're reading the cat in the hat. Or we don't look at the story of the three bears and we say, 
oh, what kind of bear was that? And and really, where did Goldilocks exactly live? And what kind of house did how did that how did they build those houses and that and how did they build the the beds in this kind of way? That's not the purpose of that story. And the Torah, you know, Jen, as you said at the beginning, it's our communal story. We've had thousands of years of interpretation and and value in it over generations. So there's tremendous value in this kind of way, but it is not designed to be an understanding of the universe as we as we look at it right now. That's that's what science aims to be able to do. The Torah aims to do something slightly different. So being able to say, how can I reconcile the Torah and Pangea? We've got to tease out what are we actually asking here? And they're asking two different kinds of questions. I'm curious that when you say something is factual, can you help us understand a little bit more about that? And when you say something to be emotionally true, is there coded language there that is emotions are not true or emotions are not factual, emotions are not real? I'm even going to push you on the genderedness of that language. Facts are serious and real and measurable in some way. And emotions is somehow sort of fluffy and ephemeral and not measurable. And I know there's some research that's contradicting that that binary that we have about facts and emotions. I'm going to push you on that. Can you tell me a little bit more? And that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that gendered piece of that. And that's that's helpful. And and I think that that both of them are crucial, right? Both of them are needed. So the emotional truth of the Torah written 3,000 years ago, and the emotional truth of the Torah written in the early 21st century, there's a through line there. Human evolution has not changed that much in 3,000 years. So these questions of who am I? How do I act in this world? How do I be part of a society? These are questions that are, these are not new. These are not 3,000-year-old questions. These are 200,000-year-old questions. Science as a process to help us understand them, that's only a few hundred years old. So, so there's, there's both of those pieces there. And, and you, and I think you don't want to necessarily say, um, wait a second, how can I factually prove that the Red Sea happened? That's, that's actually trying to put a square peg into a round hole. When you're dealing with a factual kind of question, facts might not be the way to actually talk about that. Coming at it with an army of facts may actually be counterproductive. For me, at least, the Torah is not a historical book. It's not, it's not a history textbook. Then this idea of science, that it's evolving and changing, does that make the, the understanding that the Torah is also not historical deeper? Like, does that understanding of science help us more deeply connect to the Torah? We can't change what the Torah says, right? The text is what the text is. Um, even if we don't like it, if that's what the text is. In the same way, if you are doing a scientific experiment, the data is going to be whatever the data is going to be. Even if you don't like what the data says, if that's what the data says, that's what you've got to be able to, to look at and, and build off of. In Judaism, at least, when we read the Torah, it's not the Bible says it, God says it, that's it, I believe it, done, period, end of story. There's a process by which we say, well, this links with this, or this helps me shed light on that, or I'm coming at it from this particular perspective. I have a hypothesis that this might happen. I have this idea that actually I am going to say that even if I'm reading a text that makes me uncomfortable because uh, what it was written 3,000 years ago, society has changed since then. Um, I'm actually going to come at it from a from a slightly different perspective and say this is this is what my values are right now, and I want to look and see how can I look at the text in this kind of way. So because Torah study 
like science is not static, it's dynamic. And it's also done by the people who do it and, and being able to understand what, do, what are we missing? What are other people going to say? Studying Torah as a way of, of saying, let me build up from the text to be able to find some meaning from that. I think that can, that can definitely be a very meaningful process by which we can look at the text. When the kid asks, did it really happen? You're still saying no, though, right? I, like, I am still, still saying no. I, so I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try very hard to not say, no, it didn't happen, unless it's a particularly snarky kid, and that actually might build a relationship, right? The snarkiness might be a way to connect with them, because I think that's a, that is a crucial thing, by the way, of the way that you interact with people, and it's, it's kind of obvious and very simple, but it's always a relationship. Facts don't change people's minds. Relationships change people's minds. That's a big piece. So if it's a snarky kid who said, but it didn't literally happen, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. And okay, what, what, do, we, what do we do with this now? Like, why, why is that a problem for you? If you're a student and you're saying, but this didn't even happen, and even let's say you can get behind the understanding of the text and the nuance and the poetry of it, we also then live our lives based on that text, right? So let's say you don't believe in the story of the story of, of Exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea, but then you have to go to a Passover Seder and you can't eat, you have to eat matzah. How do we get students behind that idea of this is poetic, this is emotionally true, and we're going to create laws based on this text that's not historical. It's not a science textbook. Some of that is how do we create a sense of community where there is meaning at whatever level it's going to be for that student at that time. If it's a kid who is who really wants it to be true and would be actually really scared to find out, wait a second, the Torah is not a not a literal, not literally true, I would spend a little bit more time and say, and, and I would probably be a little bit more gentle and say, okay, yeah, what so what would happen to you? What would it mean to you if it wasn't literally true? Why might that why might this be a problem for you? And I think I wouldn't say, I wouldn't start by saying no, but I would start by saying, why, why is this? Why is this a challenge for you? And really have a 10, 15 minute conversation with the student if, you know, if there's time to be able to do that. Because with almost everything, there's the surface question, but then there's a deeper question. What is my place in the Jewish community, right? Like that, you know, that's, that may be a bigger question there. And so that's an opening to be able to explore how do I connect to, to my Judaism? How do I connect with Torah in this kind of way? That's something that adults also grapple with because what often happens is, is that it becomes a question of, wait a second, I've been lied to my whole life. The Torah is not literally true. Why should I listen to this in this kind of way? And I would say, so, so what, would it, what would it mean to you if this didn't literally happen? Why is that making you uncomfortable? My guess is that, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm being taught all these things that are, that are literally true, right? Why I, I, I was sort of taught this as quote unquote history. Is this actually history? should I even be bothering and even to try to engage in these kinds of questions? So a lot of Judaism is, is this na'aseh v'nishmav? We, we do this and then we understand. And I think that's also something that's, that's an important piece of, of there are elements that we, that we do in Judaism with or without a connection to a, to a belief system. This is what our community does. This is what I do individually. But I'm curious if, if you were that student, how you would respond if, if that was the if that was the pushback to the pushback, to me the chain of tradition is what connects me. So it's, I'm cool with like fine excess from Egypt didn't maybe happen the way it's written about and the splitting of the Red Sea, but there's been so many 
all of my ancestors before me read the Torah and had a Passover Seder and followed these laws that to me, it feels I should be the one to break the chain of tradition because it's been going on for so many thousands of years before me. So to me, that's sort of heavy enough or strong enough and powerful enough to replace the fact that this, I'm not following it because it came from God on Sinai. Like it didn't come the way it is written from God. But to me, the, the chain of tradition is really powerful. And hopefully because that is an authentic answer to me, that that would be motivating to a student. If, um, but I think that would be, depending on the age and the context of the conversation, a way that I would want to authentically explain how I connect to the text and why those laws are meaningful to me, as opposed to just saying, because we're supposed to, because it came from God, because the rabbi told us to, because my mom told me to, <laughs> to try to find a really authentic way. So to me, that's authentic to say the chain of tradition feels very powerful. And that's why I would. Is there room in pluralism and thinking about these questions pluralistically to give an answer that might say some Jews think that the Torah is true, some Jews think that God is real and and not and some Jews think that the Jews were actually enslaved in Egypt and actually came out in a historical context. Is there room for that or where are you on on that point? That's a that's a great question and I think I think some of that would be what is the setting of that kind of conversation. Right? If I'm talking to them in a, a conversation of talking about theology, then we can talk about different kinds of pluralistic theologies. But if we're talking about something scientific, I'm, I'm going to be pretty firm about you've got to be able to accept mainstream science if you're going to talk about mainstream science, because there's not a, science is not something you can believe in. Science is either, it's either something that you accept or not. There's a, a, an educator named Neil deGrasse Tyson it's a little bit flip, but he says science is true whether you believe in it or not. So, so science as we understand it, it's either it's either accurate or it's not, and you know, can and it can develop and change, and we may find out that we're wrong. But but it's different than a theological belief system. So pluralistically and theologically, absolutely, you have a huge wide tent about our theology. I think you can have a huge wide tent about different questions of Jewish practice. You can have a huge wide tent about views on Israel, right? Because those, those are not scientific questions. Those are questions where people can approach it from different kinds of ways. But if it's a conversation about is the universe 13.8 billion years old or not, that's not really a debate, right? That's not really a belief system. Pieces along evolutionary biology, Big Bang cosmology, that's been, that's been very robustly shown to be accurate. So I think there's, st- there's still a very, very wide range. But when it comes to science, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a different kind of conversation than about a theological conversation. We're sort of in a moment right now in American culture where we're, many of us are very concerned about the place of truth and the place of science in our popular discourse. And and I'm sort of noticing that we might feel a little uncomfortable in this particular moment of saying, well, it didn't really happen and it's not really true and that's okay for right now, but in the rest of your lives, truth and accuracy and science and whether something is really happening and really works is very important. And so I feel like that contradiction is even more stark right now with where we are And so I'm wondering how we reconcile this thing like Passover coming up with this story that we're going to tell as if we came out of Egypt, as if we were really slaves, but we weren't really slaves, or were we really slaves? That's a great question. And there there are a couple of different things that are are going through my head. One is that there are a lot of different ways in which science and religion interact, and truth is 
one of them, and I think actually not the most important one when we think about the question of science and religion. I think it's there's much more questions of behavior and questions of of relationship, right? Those are those are those are more important here. But there's actually when you were talking about and you used the phrase that I think is a really important phrase, which is ke'ilu, as if, right? And and there's actually a lot of research that says that if we act ke'ilu, then we actually become that, as if this is true in this kind of, people have talked about this with, try, with people actually trying to stop smoking. Um, I'm going to view myself as somebody who, do, who is a non-smoker. Even if you are a smoker, I'm going to view myself as a non-smoker. How would a non-smoker act? And that actually reduces the way that somebody, somebody smokes. So uh, it's all research from, from a guy named Richard Wiseman, Dr. Richard Wiseman. So, so this idea of ke'ilu, I think is can actually be tremendously valuable because being able to say acting as if I were as if I was a slave in the land of Egypt. Okay, I myself was not a slave in the land of Egypt because I wasn't born there, right? Even if it, it literally existed, it, I, I I wasn't there. But acting as if I was a slave in the land of Egypt makes me much more attuned to the the challenges that other people are facing it makes me much more attuned to my responsibilities to others there are elements of like wait a second i am going to act as if this is this is something that is that is still real because you know what there are pieces of it which are still happening so in addition to us grappling with with the torah text right there's also god and we can't prove that god exists we can't disprove that god exists God does or doesn't exist. So how do we take our scientific minds and also have deep beliefs? That's a great question. And I, I have, there are a couple of different ways in which I, I think about and talk about God. And if I'm talking with somebody who's, who's really into science, this is, this has actually been an analogy that's been really helpful for me. And this would probably be for, for probably middle school to high school kids. So I would ask the kid, particularly if they've been studying science to be able to say, okay, what, what do you know about the earth? And they would say what they know about, like, there's, God, there's, it's 4.6 billion years old. And I'd say, okay, how, you know, like, if I were to ask you that, though, a couple hundred years ago, what would you have said? And they would have said, well, it's, it's maybe a couple million, a few million years ago, because they didn't know that in that kind of way. I'd say, okay, great. Where is the Earth relative to the rest of the Milky Way? And they would say, well, you know, we're on, on the edge of the Milky Way. We're kind of, no, I'd say, great. If I were to ask that to you 1,500 years ago, what would you say? They say, right, I'm, I'm the center of the universe. They say, right. But is the earth any different than what it's been over its 4.6 billion years, right? The earth has been whatever the earth has been. We have no control over whatever the earth has been. What's changed over our last couple hundred years is what we understand about the earth. So there's the earth as it actually is and the earth as we understand it. This comes from a guy named Professor Stephen Goldman, who actually tends to, actually is an Orthodox Jew who's talked about this. Something as it actually is versus viewing it as what he calls it a scientific object. So there's what it is that we have no control over and what we understand that can grow and develop as we develop more understanding about it. So that's actually kind of how I view God. God is whatever God is. I have zero control over God. There's the Yiddish expression of if I knew God, I'd be God. Um, so I, I, I have no knowledge of what God is, but I have my own theology and my own belief system. And that also changes and grows based on my life experience, based on what I've learned, and that can grow and develop as well in the same way that the earth is whatever the earth is. God is whatever God is, 
But just as we develop better, a better understanding of the earth or atoms or the sun or evolutionary biology, we understand more about who we are individually and, and as part of the Jewish people. That can help us change how we view God. What is a question that you would want educators to be thinking about in the realm of science and religion and in the realm of these conversations? And it can be, can a robot pray? Because that's a really awesome question. But it could also be something else. So I'm hoping that the educators will ask these, ask the question of where do I find meaning, even if something is not necessarily factually true? Can I find something that is meaningful? Because that is that's a personal decision and that's that's something that's created. Both the text and relationship with the kids. How can I orient to say what's something that's going to be a meaningful conversation, a meaningful engagement, more than what is going to be literally factually true? Jen, I'm going to ask you for a takeaway. What's something that you're taking away with you? Um, I think I still have my same core beliefs about the Torah and evolution and how I relate to them, but I think you've helped me with some language, both for myself, of how to think about how to value what is right this idea of factually true and emotionally true, and also a really useful framing of scientific facts are true and we gain more understanding. And I think you gave this to me. You definitely did the factual truth and the emotionally true. So I think think I think my deepest takeaway is new language and ways to talk about sort of how I sit with the Torah as sacred text and also believing in science. Aaron. Now I get to ask you. I think I'm taking away the moment that you're confronted with the question of this, did this really happen? And there's an opportunity for an educator to be honest and authentic and share their own personal beliefs. And sometimes I think educators, especially in a pluralistic context, I get this question all the time from my teachers. What do you want me to say? Do you want me to say what JCP believes? Do you want me to say what I believe? And turning it into a question and turning it back to them and saying, why is this important to you? Why is my answer important to you? Why is the answer important to you? Uh, I think that's really powerful. And I think that that's the pedagogy that I would want my teachers to use anyway. Since there really isn't one satisfying answer to this question, we could get, come up with lots of different ones. There's not really one satisfying answer. So the most satisfying answer that any of us could ever have is the one that we come to on our own. And I think that what makes our educators really strong in those moments is when they can ask the right questions, hold the space for awkward silence and struggling silence as everybody's figuring it out because these are really big questions and I hope they don't go anywhere because that's what keeps the conversation going. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. It was a pleasure speaking with you this morning and we look forward to many more scientifically rooted, spiritually uplifting conversations with you in the future. Thank you both. This was a lot of fun.
We want to hear from you. If you are planning a lesson or there's something that's on your mind, tell us about it. We want this podcast to be useful to you, our fellow educators. Be sure to subscribe to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast channel to download and listen to future episodes of How We Talk About. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.